So, Phil, thanks so much for joining us on this, I want to say sunny evening, and then I'm always conscious that, it, um, of course, whenever people listen to this, it'll be snowing, or if they're in England, it'll be raining. But right now, just a sunny, glorious day, and I love Arthur. Like, I just absolutely, I feel like I'm one of those people who just, um, there's something about the magic of the legend. And today we're going to be talking to you, and you're going to read to us, and I just wanted to jump right in and ask. There's so many of us that are like interested or fascinated in the legends of Arthur. And what is it about this legend that interests you? I think he's kind of like a superhero, isn't he? Um, he's almost like Superman and um, any of those heroes because he, he is, is the, everybody thinks he's an English hero, but he's not. He's a British hero because, in actual fact, he was fighting the Saxons, and, and that's us, isn't it? And people of, of England, the English. Um, so they're the baddies, really. But I think because people can, people can um, relate to him, I think, because, because he's fighting the oppressors, and everybody wants to, to back someone who's fighting an oppressor. I think you're right. I think it is. There is that magic, and there is, I guess, that that bit of wanting the underdog or what we think of as the underdog to win and to come out on top, or good versus evil. I do like quite the the England as the baddies, though. I think I'm <laughs> going to be keeping that for for quite a while. So thank you. So can we ask you to start us off with a reading, please? Okay, this is the start of book one. Book one is the Dragon Ring. When I went to scatter my father's ashes, I didn't expect to get kidnapped. On that chilly Sunday morning in November, I wanted to be alone for the last words I'd ever say to him. With Dad in my backpack and leaving my boyfriend Nathan asleep in bed in our Glastonbury hotel, I climbed the steep path to the tour. In the half-light of early morning, thick mist lay over the town and no one else was about. For miles around, only the odd dark treetop on the tip of a church spire emerged from the sea of white. Easy to see why some people believed this hill could have been part of Avalon, that mystical land King Arthur had vanished to after being mortally wounded in his last battle. My father had been one of those people. Shouldering off my backpack, I pulled out Dad's urn. It weighed surprisingly heavily in my hands for someone who'd only been skin and bone when he died. I stood him on the grass beside the roofless church tower. I wish Artie could be here, Dad. No answer, of course. My twin brother was on the far side of the world on a prolonged trip with his mates, and I'd have to imagine him here with me, spiritually, despite the fact he hadn't made the effort to get back. Typical. A bit of frost sparkled on the short grass. For a minute or two, I stood looking at the bleak hilltop, remembering the last time I'd been up here 17 years ago. Artie and I were seven. Our mother was already dying. Although being so young, we weren't aware of the limitation on our time with her. I remember it so well, because it was the first time I saw the fancy dress man. The tree's naked branches rattle in the wind beneath a dull grey sky. Damp cold penetrates to my very bones. My mother's skin is parchment pale, her once glorious auburn hair wispy and colourless beneath her hand-knitted hat. My father over-enthusiastic as usual, expounds on the history of the tour. He looks old, with his bush of grey hair, jutting eyebrows and thick-lensed spectacles. He's a university professor and obsessive Arthurian scholar, which is how my brother and I have come to be called Arthur and Guinevere, although my mother shortens those to Artie and Gwenny. 
The hump of Glastonbury Tor rises out of the surrounding flat farmland, long since reclaimed from ancient marshes. Dad parks our Land Rover on a rutted grass verge, and we take the shortest route to the summit. Artie and I run on ahead, our boots splashing through the puddles. We're oblivious to the quiet suffering of our mother as she and our father slog along behind us. It's a pilgrimage for them, as it will be the last time she sees the tour. But to exuberant seven-year-olds, she just seems annoyingly slow. We reach the summit together, well ahead of our parents. For a moment, the gaunt outline of the tower holds me mesmerised, even though I've seen it countless times before. Artie and I have been visiting Glastonbury since just after we were born. Race you to the tower! Artie gives me a backward push and sets off to run. I sprint after him, but he's long-legged and athletic and taller than I am, and besides, he's given himself a cheating head start. He wins, of course. I pretend I haven't been trying. We walk round to the far side of the tower and look out at the view over the Somerset levels. Voices carry on the wind. I peer through the arches of the tower. Our parents appear at the far end of the hilltop. Race your back! Artie's off again, legs hammering down the slight slope. This time, I ignore him. I'm alone. The wind blows through the empty shell of the tower. Below me, the town lies quiet. I turn on the spot, my short arms outstretched, my face uplifted to the slate-grey sky overhead, eyes stretched wide to take it all in. Strands of my long chestnut hair whip across my cheeks. Above the whistling of the wind, a faint musical note sounds. I close my eyes and open my ears. Such a sweet sound. To a seven-year-old brought up on bedtime tales of Celtic heroes, it carries all the allure of fairyland. My lips curl in a smile. My small feet take tentative steps towards the sound. I open my eyes. I'm standing inside the tower. The wicked wind has died to nothing. All I can hear is that single faint musical note. Beyond the stone arches, the world has blurred out of focus, yet within, every stone is crystal clear. I turn around, pushing loose strands of my hair out of my eyes. He's standing watching me, a man in strange old-fashioned clothing. Immediately in my head, I dub him the fancy dress man. He's tall and slim and as out of place as a hawk on a garden bird table. His clothes remind me of a picture of the Pied Piper of Hamelin in one of my books. A long russet cloak hangs below his knees. I'm not afraid. Oh, wow. Quite the gripping opening. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. And thank you for doing the voices. I I absolutely loved hearing it read. It was just, um, I want to use the word magical. Oh, thank you. So thank you for transporting us. So one, I'm really curious about, there's so many retellings of Arthur. How did you find your unique story to tell? Well, my husband and I went to Glastonbury Tour and he took some photos of it. Um, this is quite a long time ago, um, using infrared film. And um, when he developed them, he'd taken four on motor drive and you can't mess with infrared film. And in the first picture, you can, with, this is from below the tour, looking at it, you can see the hump of the tour and the tower on the top. Second picture, hump of the tour, the tower is fading. Third picture, hump of the tour, no tower. Fourth picture, the tower's back. 
nothing. We saw nothing while he was taking it. And I wondered, my theory is that for the, such a tiny fraction of a second that we couldn't see it, the tower disappeared and showed us what the, what the tour looked like before the tower was there. And I wondered what would happen if you were inside the tower when that happened. And so the idea for Guinevere was born and putting a modern girl back into the dark ages because she sees everything through the eyes of the reader because we are all 21st century girls women um and she puts her own slant and opinion on everything she sees so she's quite sort of snarky and and she gets a bit cross about things because they're very different to the way we are and the men are very different to the men she knows i love that like my goodness this um what an adventure and what a to to be able to have this this picture with it fading and like my goodness and now I'm like I need one of these cameras I'm not even like every picture I take ends up with my thumb in various places around the world <laughs> but even still I'm going my goodness and I love that it inspired this this like what if or what might happen I also love that um that Gwen is a librarian yeah <laughs> it's like librarians are i don't know they're i think one of my favorite types of people so i love that they get to have this adventure in your book well it's um i wanted her to have something to do with books and i wanted to choose something that really fitted with the way i feel about books and i felt like a librarian was perfect (laughs) she's surrounded by books all the time but the poor girl goes back to the dark ages and she very rarely sees a book So she can't wait to get back to her own time. <laughs> well, no, she gets used to it. But she oh, does She does get to meet. I don't know how familiar you are with the people who wrote about King Arthur in the time after he died. But one of the, the earliest person who is possibly contemporary with King Arthur is um, a monk called Gildas. And she gets to meet Gildas and she will get to help him write his book. Well, she gets to be behind how he writes his book. <laughs> Oh, how exciting. And in oh, fact, so she, gets, writes her, oh, she writes her own book in the end. She gets the monks at uh, Glastonbury because there's an abbey there even in those times. This is not in the books that are published at the moment. This is in the later books. Um, she does actually organise it so she can write the book of Guinevere. Oh, I love that. She, she gets her own book, her own story. She gets to be, oh, <laughs> I love it. And again, I love that it goes back to this moment and, and this experience that you had and this picture. You still have all the pictures, don't you? Uh, they're in a box in our garage. I must get Patrick to find them. Really? Is he's got thousands and thousands of negatives and photographs because he's such a keen photographer. I mean, now he's a digital photographer, but back then it was all in the dark room. And so I keep telling him he's got to find them for me. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. How many photos can you have of disappearing disappearing buildings? I know. <laughs> He's like, yeah, just, you know, another day at the office. <laughs> well, if you find it, I do hope that um that you put it up so that we can see like all if four I find of them it, because I will. <laughs> it's gonna be breathtaking. And speaking of which, could we have another reading, please? Okay, this is from book two, which is called The Bear's Heart. Gwen has decided to stay in the Dark Ages at this point. And I decided to choose, It's I think it's something like chapter 14, in fact, but it's Gwen's first view of a battle in the Dark Ages. Because one of the problems I had was there are an awful lot of battles and she's a woman. So I had to sort of work out how she was going to see them. Right. <clears throat> 
The flock of rooks rose in a cloud of dirty washing, black wings beating the heavy air, their harsh cries plaintive in the silence of the battlefield. Only it wasn't silence, was it? There's never silence in the aftermath of a battle. There are groans, because the dead are not all dead. They're wounded, grievously, mortally, fatally, and they're a long time in dying. A sword bites through flesh and blood vessels, sinew and tendons. It punctures intestines and lungs and stomachs, but it doesn't always kill. And the stench. I'd read about battles in books, seen them dramatised in films, in TV dramas, in documentaries, but never had anyone mentioned the smell. You had to be there in it, amongst the dead and the dying, to know what that smell was like. It was blood and sweat, and above all, it was shit because dying men vacate their bowels at the point of death, as all the muscles finally relax. But I wasn't in the fray. I was just an outsider, an observer, stationed with my guard in the tree line above the river. I'd watched it all unfold before me, as the early morning mist cleared, and the sun came creeping up over the far horizon, gilding the forest's treetops with its warm glow. A deceptive warmth. For there was no warmth in what lay before me now. The sun had turned its face away to hide behind a veil of cloud, as though disowning what lay before it. Brutal and raw up on the banks of the river. Smoke rose from the burning boats drawn up on the foreshore, and the camp the Saxon raiders had made lay broken and twisted, unrecognisable in the dirt, like them. Shock held me mesmerised. Shock and fear, although it wasn't a fear for my husband, whose white horse singled him out amongst the riders now clustering near the ruin of the boats. He was safe. He was alive. He had won. Blood streaked his horse's shoulders, the blood of the enemy, and I could see him giving orders as his dismounted men sorted through the stolen booty won back from the Saxons. If I turned my head, I'd see Merlin, stationed like a guard dog to my left. On my right, Bran sat his restless horse, the animal a window to his own feelings. He was the young warrior whose arm I'd stitched all those months ago, on the day I'd first set eyes on Arthur. He'd missed the battle and all that entailed, and here he was, sitting nursemaid on the Queen, while all the others got first pickings over the stolen booty. All I could feel was shock. It seemed such a small span of time since we'd come to the edge of the forest and looked down at the sleeping Saxon camp through the pre-dawn gloom. I'd certainly been shocked when I'd seen its size. Five ships were drawn up on the shore, burnt skeletons now, embers still glowing, the oily black smoke from their tarry sides rising skywards. Two hundred warriors, Merlin had informed me in the lowest of low voices, forty to a ship. Thinking Menogan's army had retreated to lick its wounds in his stronghold at Kyrlind Collin, the Saxons had posted few lookouts. Arthur's scouts had dealt with them, making the edge of the forest ours, with its view down toward the dark, peaty snake of the River Glen and the low-lying marshes beyond. Faced with the reality of two hundred enemy warriors in the camp, fear had seized my entrails in its icy hand. Even the curt order from my husband for Merlin and Bran to take me to a place of safety on a little rise just inside the tree line hadn't steadied my anxious heart. I could make no pretense to having had any understanding of the battle. How could I have? I was used to keeping books in order in a library, and the most fighting I'd needed to do was in the January sales. Yes, 
I'd see an action in the skirmish on the road to Viraconium with the Saxon Federati belonging to Arthur's brother Cadbury. I'd even stabbed a man in an effort to save myself, but that had been nothing like a full-blown battle. So when it began, I watched with a horrible fascination, as though it were far away and nothing could possibly touch me. I'd felt like this before, detached from a reality I couldn't understand or accept. Those weren't the men I knew, galloping their horses down the muddy slope toward the river, shooting fire arrows into the furled sails of the boats, shrieking war cries at the tops of their voices. Wow, you know what? Um, the description was just so vivid and just detailed. And I love how you d- it developed the not just the, the tension in the setting, but also the character. And we get to kind of see it through her eyes in a way that we might um, understand it or kind of comprehend it and visualize it. And I li- also really appreciate that you didn't kind of glamorize war at, like, at all. It was just very like, this is really it's it's smelly and it's ugly and it's dirty and it's all and it's painful and um it was just so vivid and crisp so thank you so much for that there's there's very much a lot of non-glamorization of war because there's a lot of battles because he fought 12 battles that are um, listed by the monk Nennius who was writing in about the beginning of the ninth century and I've used them I mean there's a lot of debate as to whether they were his whether they were real whether they suspiciously they rhyme but that doesn't mean to say they're not his (laughs) <laughs> i love that as, as the possibility you know they, they may not exist because have you noticed they rhyme <laughs> yes well then again they could have changed the order so there's an awful lot of um where, the, where there are mentions of king arthur they're written so many hundred years after he lived that they could have been added in at the same time, you know, eight, several hundred years after. They're not necessarily contemporary because the only person who was contemporary was Gildas and he doesn't mention King Arthur at all. But there isn't... For Guy? No, the theory, I should say the theory in my... I mean, the theory I've used in my book is that Gildas was a son of King Cor of Strathclyde, whose headquarters was at Dumbarton Rock on the River Clyde. And King Cor has a son, this is all a legend, who's called Huel. And Arthur is supposed to have um, executed Huel for some crime. Now, consequently, of course, this was Gildas's brother. So there is several possibilities why Gildas doesn't mention him. Could be that he doesn't like him <laughs> because he killed his brother. He, he has a good, re- you know, that's good reason. And I was reading the legend um, in in your book, and I, I don't think I had, I don't know if that's, I hadn't read the legend in that way. I had no idea that he would have had children, and um, I was like, "What?" Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, he had several children, and all the children I've used are real children of King Arthur, because wow. he's um, he's got um, well. Medrout, who's Mordred, of course, in later, the, the, the name morphed. I've tried to use the oldest possible names. So Med, Mordred becomes Medrout. And Medrout is supposed to be his incestuous son. I won't say a spoiler, but I have used that, but not quite the way. So <laughs> um, I'm surprised to read that. Um, and I think it's because of the way, I guess maybe either the versions that I've read or the ways that I've allowed myself the maybe the things I've allowed myself to forget or like whatever because I didn't know that he was married so I also didn't know that he had affairs um and like 
the whole children thing. And then I'm like, wait a minute, would that make the Knights of the Round Table? His like nephews. And then I'm going, oh my goodness, what's going <laughs> <laughs> What sort of research went into writing? Like, because it's not just the, the legend, I mean, it's the legend, but then the world that you're doing and the setting and the names and, and everything. What sort of research kind of goes into it? A lifetime of research. The, the internet is such a boon for research now for writers, isn't it? I and mean, when I first started, it was all out of books. And I still have a massive collection of books about King Arthur. Whenever, every Christmas, someone always finds me a new one. And some of them I like, and some of them are not so good. And I, I think I probably could write my own textbook about King Arthur now. <laughs> Um, but I like to visit all the places that I, I write about as well, which is very good because I live in England. If I was American, like a lot of my friends are American, um, they can't go and visit the places they write about. Uh, they, a lot of them write historical novels set in the UK and they're American, and that is quite difficult. Right? My favourite place is South Cadbury Castle, which is quite close to Glastonbury. Um, have you ever been there? No, not yet, but I'm adding it to my list. Well, it's my Din Cavern, and the interesting thing about it was there was a strong legend adhering to it from some time in the 16th century. At the, uh, at the that's the early, well, the only reference we have, but it probably ad- adhered to it before that, um, saying that it was Camelot. Now, of course, the name Camelot is not contemporary. The name Camelot comes from Camulodunum, which is Colchester, and that's far too far to the east, so it can't possibly be Camelot. So Camelot is not the name of King Arthur's stronghold, but Cadbury Castle is, could be, (laughs) easily. Anyway, when they excavated in the 1960s, they found that it had been refortified at exactly the right time for King Arthur. And it is the biggest fort like that. It's got a very long, it's nearly a mile around the outside, not quite a mile, um, the, the ramparts are when you walk around them. And it's pretty big. I think it's about... 17 acres something like that so we would need a lot of men to to run that to to defend it and it's got massive banks up the side there's about four banks and ditches going up the hill it's it's a wonderful place to visit it's very atmospheric you know when I first came here when we came to the UK um I did my PhD at Lancaster and I used to have these trips to go um so it, it took me a while to realize that actually all the trips were either, um, they were all tied to shopping and something. <laughs> so they were like dual trips. So it would be shopping and also something historic. Um, but then there was one that they were doing and it was supposed, supposed to be going to, to um, I think it was whatever it was. It was like Camelot or if when I read it at first, I was going, oh my gosh, we get to see um, like King Arthur's, like, you know, the whole castle. And then it looked like reading that they're like, oh, we're not sure that's where it is and, and all this stuff. And then I'm like, what? Um, so I was really, I think that was the first time I realized that there was a possibility that it wasn't quite as true as my heart had believed. <laughs> <laughs> Not because of the rhymes, though. <laughs> the, the thing that interests me is most of my friends who, most, well, English and American friends, I belong to a critiquing group called Critique Circle, and it's worldwide, but a lot of them are American. And one thing they do seem to know, and they all have in common, is Lancelot. And he's a medieval French interloper. He will never darken the pages of my book. <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> Absolutely. I can't stand Lancelot. No way. Never in a million years. I love that it's like I um I love that it's a, a, an American thing. Like I, I don't know where we got it from. <laughs> 
Well, for yeah, watching I do know that. Last Night with Richard Gere. <laughs> Maybe because yeah, um, I do. I think expect him in any in any author like story. But so, is there something that you've learned through your research? And I know you've done lots and lots of it. But something that you thought was super super interesting, but that will never be in your book besides Lancelot. <laughs> well, there were so many different um, rabbit holes that I went down. One of the um modern thinking now Arthur's last battle is called the Battle of Camlan and modern thinking is that it could be at a fort on Hadrian's Wall called Camberglana which unfortunately was almost obliterated when they built a abbey I think it is or a monastery um which is I think itself in ruins now because most of Hadrian's Wall has gone I think there's only about 10% of Hadrian's Wall in situ anymore everything else has been looted and turned into farmhouses and walls else you know field walls and this particular fortress at Camberglana which means the twisted valley I think it means something like that it means a valley with a bend in it and it definitely has got a, a bend in it and that the theory the modern theory is that that could be where the site of the battle of Camlan but it does not suit my story so I didn't use it <laughs> but Gwen, that reason. <laughs> Gwen thinks it might be Camlan because she knows the same that she has the same knowledge I have and she's definitely terribly terribly worried that when he goes towards Hadrian's Wall, that he's going to Camlan, he's going to get killed, but it's not. It's not Camlan. <laughs> he doesn't even go to Camberglana, in fact. <laughs> oh my goodness, I love that. Well, thank you. And can we ask you for one final reading before we go, please? Okay, now this is from book three, The Sword, and this is when Gwen has gone to Hadrian's Wall. She's gone north to join him at Vindolanda, and Vindolanda is. Well, it, it was a fortress, and it's about a mile or two. I don't know. Have you heard of the Vindolanda tablets? No. Oh, um, it's being constantly excavated, and they discovered a lot of little wooden tablets with writing on them. And they're very interesting because um, they're things like send, send more socks and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> they're really... That's not what I thought you were going to say. They're an insight into the human side of the, of, of the soldier serving at Vindolanda. But it was it was occupied for a long time after the Romans left. And outside outside the fort, there was what's called the Vicus, which was the civilian settlement. But once the Romans had left, everybody moved inside the fortress. And I, <coughs> when, when my research, I discovered that there was a person there called Riacus who actually lived at Vindolanda. So he's in my book. <laughs> I mean, it's probably not the same Riacus, but I just used the name because I knew that he lived there. Anyway, so she's at um, Vindolanda. She's met Arthur up there. She had to go and meet him. And she's made friends with Riacus's wife, who is called Ellen. And she is showing Ellen. She's teaching Ellen about the geography of the British Isles and her, she's, because Gwen has got map making skills, um, which she gleaned from her experiences with her father when she was younger because he took her everywhere. And Google Earth, <coughs> of course. Of course. Ellen leant over my shoulder, entranced by my drawing. Is this what our land looks like from above, like a bird would see it? Yes, only the bird would have to be very high up, higher than a bird can go. I wrote Caer Ligwilid at one end and marked Vindolanda, roughly where I thought it might lie, then added in the Stengate running between Corrier and Caer Ligwilid. This is magic, Ellen's voice brimmed with awe. Where are the seats of the kings of Altclut and Guatodin? I might be able to put them on, Ellen frowned. I think 
I heard Ryaka say that Lot has his court at Din Edin. I'm not sure about Kor. Would it be Dunbriatan? She paused. Do you know these places? I shrugged. I can hazard a guess. Din Edin had to be Edinburgh, probably on the site of the present castle, which sat on the plug of an extinct volcano. That would be an excellently well-defended spot to hold your court from. But Dunbriatan? Could that be Dumbarton? And if so, where was that? I struggled to mark it on the map inside my head. Wasn't it on the River Clyde, near Glasgow? And if so, not that far from Cor's rival court. I marked these two on the map as best I could, more certain of Din Edin than I was of Dunbriatton. But a map's not a lot of use without a scale. How long was the wall? 80 miles? No, a little less, about 75. That would have to do. I drew a line to one side, the same length as the wall, and beside it wrote, 75 miles. I divided it into five and marked each as 15, then one of them into three and labelled them as five miles each. You can read and write! Clearly impressed, Ellen ran her fingers over the words I'd just written and smudged them a little. You need to let the ink dry. I rewrote the fives. And yes, I can read and write and reckon. Oh, I can reckon, she retorted, in my head and on my fingers, but no one I know except my husband can read and write. It's magic. The panelled wooden doors from the dining room opened and the men came out, Arthur by Riacus's side, Merlin, Kay and Theodoric behind them. Riacus, seeing Ellen and me on our knees at the low table, approached. Ellen leapt to her feet, eyes shining. Come and see what the Queen has done, my love, what she's made. All of them came over. For a long moment, they stood staring down at the crude map, held down by the stones on the table. Merlin spoke first. A map? Most likely, at least Riacus needed telling what this was. Might Theodoric, as a sailor, have seen one before? Arthur moved closer, bending over the map. I got to my feet and took a step back. As maps went, it wasn't the best by a long way. I can do better, I said, apologetic that they'd come upon it in its infancy. It's just a sketch as yet. Arthur was quick on the uptake as usual. This here, this is the coast. The land is this shape. His finger jabbed at the line of the wall and where I'd marked Vindolanda. And we are here. Ellen nodded, eyes alight with excitement. It's as though we were birds flying high in the sky, looking down on our world. I couldn't have put it better myself. Kay frowned. How can you know what a bird would see? How can this be right? Is our land so strange a shape? What's this and this and this? He pointed to the amorphous blobs I'd scattered around the lowlands of Scotland. Higher ground, big hills, deep valleys, where it would be difficult for an army to pass. Not impossible, but not ground you could make fast progress over. Probably some bogs, ravines, cliffs. I can't be sure. What I wouldn't have given for Google Earth. Arthur's finger landed on Dunbriatton. This is Cor's stronghold here, so far north, so close to Lot's own fortress. I nodded. On this river, I think it's called the Clyde. It is, Riacus traced the river's course. This is a wondrous thing to behold, he turned to Arthur. The ring maiden is worth her weight in gold. Kind of him to say so. Merlin turned to me. You say you can do better. If we find you more parchment, can you put more detail on? If I'd had Google Earth to look at, I could have done better still, but I didn't. All I had was my memory, which, good as it was, might well be fallible. I can try. I came here long ago with my father. We visited many of these places, but I was only a child, at best fifteen or so, and that's a long time ago now. 
longer than all but Merlin and Arthur knew. A proper map would be most useful, Arthur said, for in two days' time I'm marching north. I gazed down at my crude map, wondering how I was going to persuade him to take me with him. Wow, and what a responsibility that would be to to be the only one to be able to see something and to to kind of know what might happen because you've you've read these legends and you're here and how much can you say and I would imagine whenever the other um Ryakus is it Ryakus whenever his wife says uh when Ellen says that's magic um I know every time she says it I'm thinking witchcraft but um, <laughs> even though they're two different timelines I'm going wow should I be worried about like poor Gwen <laughs> well Poor Gwen is in a cleft stick because she knows all the legends, but she doesn't know which of them are true. So in book one, she's this is before she's fallen in love with Arthur and decided to stay. She's talking to Merlin about it. And Merlin says, no, you have to stay because it's you that will make him the queen, the king of legend. And she says, no, she said, it's you that will make him the king of legend because you're going to stick a, a sword in the stone and he's going to be the one that can pull it out. And then she sees Merlin's, the cogs in his brain working. And at the end of, at the end of book one, guess what appears in the, 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 the forum at Viriconium? Merlin's put a sword in the stone there and she's made the legend happen. <laughs> So it's a kind of, she knew the legend, but the legend only happened because she told Merlin. So it's a chicken and egg thing. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So, Phil, I could talk to you all day, but you know what? We need to get out and we need to be reading the book. Can you please tell um, our listeners where we can find it? Um, Well, you can go to my website, which is philreed.com, and there's a link on there to buy to Amazon, actually. So it's on Amazon, but mainly... (laughs) I know not everyone buy from Amazon, but but you know what? It's such a um, fabulous book, and and I know that the series is going to be just as compelling. So people will have to get the book and support the book, and maybe tweet or update statuses or whatever about the book, so that more and more people get to read this story. I would like Thank them to you. do that very much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us and for reading and doing the voices, for sharing um, your insight and kind of how the story came to be.